Good afternoon. Welcome to On the Line. I'm Joe Mullings, and again in Potrero's studio with Joe Urban. Joe, welcome. Hey, Joe. Uh, Joe Urban, CEO of Potrero, and I'm excited today to have uh, Rajan Patel, one of our technical advisors, join us. Rajan is the Senior Director of Search at Google and is helping us with our machine learning algorithm and our structure of our data as we bring our predictive analytics and predictive health platform to the market. Cool. Welcome, Roger. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I've got a question for you. How would I, in two or three sentences, and again, take it down low for me, describe what an algorithm is? So when my mom asks me, what's an algorithm? How would I basically explain that? I'd say it's an automated way to solve a problem. It doesn't have to be a, a computer software program. It doesn't have to be something that incorporates you know, machine learning or anything like that. In its simplest form, I'd say it's really a set of steps that you take. A recipe. A recipe to solve a problem. And, and that recipe can be manual. That recipe can be automated, could be automatically generated. And the, you know, this is where like machine learning is starting to take us. And some of these recipes, ideally, they can be interpreted by humans and understood by humans, or they can be a black box. Uh, and this is some of the challenges we're facing is, well, you know, the, the recipes we have to solve some of the problems we have at, at, at Google um, it's important for us to be able to understand how they work and interpret them. So these algorithms have to be interpretable because ultimately we'll find that there are areas where we can do better. And if we can interpret and understand the algorithm, the recipe, then we can understand, well, you know, this is the part of the recipe that can be improved. But if that recipe is a black box, let's say some you know, really mm -hmm. complicated machine learned model, then it makes it very difficult for us to go in and say like, hey, well, you know, what's wrong with this? I, you know, we don't know. Um, it's hard to debug. But the value of these machine learned models is that, well, they help us, uh, you know, given a particular metric, if you know exactly what you want to optimize for, you'll be able to optimize for it extremely efficiently. Yeah. How's that fit into Petrero, Joe? Well, for us, it's organizing the data and understanding what we're looking at. Right now, we're analyzing. Rajan always reminds Sahil and his team that we're dealing with small data right now, and Google deals with big data. <laughs> but it's organizing the data to where and creating something that's meaningful for the doctors. Yeah, and it's uh, critically important to make sure that you know at Potrero we can understand exactly how our models work, and we can understand where they might fail. The understandability is super important in this area in particular. You know, there's different algorithms for different things. For example, you know, the keyboard, when you type on your phone, there's an algorithm that determines like whether it autocorrects to another word or not, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is it critical that we can understand and debug, uh, you know, when we make mistakes, how we make mistakes? Maybe less so than, for example, this industry, where if you make a mistake, you need to understand why so that you can understand, well, what signals do I need to add to my device to help us improve? You would call like a flu in Portland, Oregon before the CDC, right? 
That's right. So we would call, um, we would say like, hey, there's an outbreak in a particular city or state and eventually I think expanded outside the U.S. as well. Uh, and the models were all trained on the CDC's data. So, you know, we weren't really ultimately training on ground truth, like what fraction of the population is actually sick with flu. But it was it was uh, trained on what we thought the CDC data would have shown at that time if it were available. Uh, so that CDC data and the relationship we had with the CDC was super valuable uh, for us uh, to be able to to create uh, Google Flu Trends. And we couldn't have done it without them. We wrote a paper in Nature jointly with them. Wow. And yeah, you know, it was uh, it was it was a good project, uh, and ultimately, you know, with all of these big data projects, these models that you build, it's important to invest in continuously, you know, monitoring and making sure that uh, the predictions we're making are uh, are accurate. For example, what happened one year is that there was H one N one. I think it was two thousand nine, uh, where there was a this huge media frenzy around influenza. And that media frenzy caused users to issue more queries about flu than they normally would have, right? And so, you know, given that there was that big media frenzy, well, then now, like, how, how did our model react to that? You know, we uh, ultimately felt like we were doing a pretty good job, but it's uh, it's not clear, like, uh, exactly how well how well that ended up working out because, you know, the CDC data is also kind of somewhat influenced by this media frenzy. And so we didn't really have this ground truth that we could compare against to figure out what really happened that year in terms of influenza-like illness. And ultimately, we couldn't resolve it and decided, you know what, this is a hard problem. Uh, <laughs> and it's probably worth uh, you know, either us investing more than, you know, two engineers on it or zero engineers on it and turning it off and ultimately decided that the direction we wanted to go with Google.org is one of a more like philanthropic organization where we donated resources to outside uh, nonprofits as opposed to building tools ourselves. And, uh, and so we went that direction. In your role in Google, because I think Joe had mentioned, he ref you referred to him as a futurist, and I love that, by the way. He is. Yeah, a yeah. futurist. So do you ever wrestle, or does the team wrestle, with the modification of human behavior based upon developing algorithms? And, and not necessarily, you know, whoever's definition of modification of behavior is, because you have a lot of power. Yeah, Google has influence over the web ecosystem. So for example, if in our ranking algorithm at Google, we say, hey, you know what, we're going to promote content in search that loads very quickly or that renders well on a mobile device, then ultimately what will happen is web developers will generate content that loads very fast or renders well on a mobile device. And so we have that influence over that ecosystem. We have influence over web developers. Similarly, Facebook and, and other, uh, other companies that are front doors to that web, they have influence over that content. What you may have seen happen over the last few years is uh, with respect to the news industry. You know, the way that Facebook or Google would rank news content influences the kind of news content that gets created. And we have to be conscientious, very conscientious, not only of producing algorithms that optimize for what users want today, but for the influence that might have on the underlying web ecosystem we're built upon such that 10 years from now, uh, Google's still a valuable tool for people. And so, you know, yes, influence over the web ecosystem. And of course, when you use a tool like Google to search for something, uh, the kinds of results we show, they uh, they have influence over, you know, ultimately what the user ends up doing and learning as a, as a result of, mm -hmm. of what we do. I'm just thinking about how algorithms change the way we move now, right? So my wife has a Fitbit and mm -hmm. 
she's like, hey, you want to go for a walk at six o'clock at night? I'm like, why? She goes, because this told me I had to get 240 yeah. <laughs> more steps in, yeah. right? Or the commercials on 23andMe and somebody finds right. out that they're not from Germany, but they're from Italy Africa, and they change yeah. their lifestyle, right. but that's not how they were feeling. So it's really funny to see how algorithms are driving behavior that is not natural mm-hmm. or even like date.com. You can, I might look at Christina and by gosh, I love her and like, but she doesn't fit the algorithm that I filled in for so must not work, right? com. So yeah, yeah. No, I mean, every product works differently. You know, for example, a social media product, uh, one of its goals is to generate repeat users, uh, daily active users. So what it might do is push you notifications and say, hey, you know what? Your friend liked your post. And it's like, oh, you know what? I, I want to go check that out. And how many people liked my post? How many people <laughs> saw like, you know, Joe's post on LinkedIn that, you know, we're all coming here today. And and it becomes uh, gamified. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and ultimately what happens is some of these products, they gamify users to return back to the product. And, you know, likes are a way to do this. Notifications that are pushed to re-engage you with that product are a way to do this. And ultimately, it's not clear whether this is always in the best interest of users. And we have to be conscientious about what the goals of these products are in the short run versus like whether you know, users are benefiting in the long run. Because ultimately, you know, if this Fitbit 10,000 step goal, you know, five years from now, if you don't feel like you're a healthier, better person because you've been using that, then, you know, you're not going to use Fitbit anymore. And maybe in the short run, you'll be a repeat user, uh, but in the long run, you won't be. And so it's always best to optimize for the long run. And the trick is, like, you know, what metric is it that captures that long run benefit? Because it's very easy to say, like, oh, DAUs, uh, you know, my daily actives, that's a short term metric. Uh, these are vanity metrics, right? They're metrics mm-hmm. that, that make you feel good about uh, how well your product's doing today, but they can be gamified by pushing notifications. They can be gamified by saying, like, if you're Snapchat, you have a streak, right, with whoever you're communicating with on Snapchat. And, you know, sometimes these tools are, are good for users. They're useful in the short run and in the long run. Sometimes they're only useful in the short run. Yeah, but think about it. Like 10,000 steps for you, it's totally different than for me or anybody else. It's taking it and then personalizing it. Yeah, right. that's right. Is gamification another word for addiction? <laughs> you know, it could be if you fall down the wrong path. And, you know, for example, uh, you know, Pokemon Go. Uh, I think that's actually a quite positive example of gamification. Ultimately, the goal there is, hey, how do we get people outside? How do we get people moving? And so uh, there's positive aspects to it, positive aspects to some of the usage to make you come back. But ultimately, my personal viewpoint is if you build a product that's useful, then the gamification doesn't need to be a primary or shouldn't be a primary aspect of it. And, you know, I've been fortunate, I feel like, to work at, at... you know, a company, at least initially with, with what we were doing with search, where we feel like, you know, we're, we're building something that uh, that's useful for people that I feel like we focus purely on that utility and, you know, users come back and it grows because it's a useful product. So Rajan, what's amazed me about Google is your tenacity to stick with simplicity, right? Where every other search company in the late 90s, early 2000s was jamming with information, like they were jamming everything they could yeah. on the page. And anything, anytime Google had something added to it, you'd have people that would complain, right? And count the number of words on your yeah, home site. Yeah, actually, that's a really good insight. I think what happens is ultimately the direction the product goes is driven by what metric you consider to be your true north. If Google considered, for example, click-through rate or you know repeat users uh, as like its true north very early on, then yeah, like perhaps we would have fallen down that path of adding content to the homepage 
maybe like adding kind of clickbaity content to the homepage, you know? One thing I appreciate about and I learned very quickly at Google was that we, we spent a lot of time thinking about what our true north is and what our metric is. And it, and it wasn't click-through rate. It was something that we defined internally. And uh, we spent a lot of time manually curating. You're obviously familiar with the Potrero product and platform. What do you forecast that potentially becoming in two or three years, not just to Potrero, but to the healthcare industry, the predictive analytics? So... Uh, you know, at a high level, I think that the healthcare industry is moving towards a model where we use personalized data in a way that hasn't been done before. We're now building sensors and, and building devices that enable us to collect more specific and sensitive data that we've been able to do before. And in doing so, we're able to improve processes and personalize those processes in a way that hasn't been done before. Some of the advances in you know big data analytics, machine learning, uh, are going to help a lot here, and that they're already starting to to have influence in med devices, but also you know genomics, uh, cancer research, you know health insurance companies, just in the industry in general. You know, I, I think ultimately device companies like Protrero will grow and succeed based on the fact that that we're able to build uh, devices and sensors that collect information that help us make predictions uh, more accurately than could have been done before. Uh, you know, generically, that's what I feel like the direction Petrero is heading in and ultimately being able to build devices that collect data that hasn't you know, been able to be collected before. That's going to be something that's core to Petrero's brand. Yeah. So uh, your father's a surgeon, mm -hmm. right? Um, in Tampa. So you're Not back too far here, away. right? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure he's seen a lot of advances in, in technology in the last 30 years, Yeah. right? What will the next 20 years look like for healthcare? As you look forward as a futurist, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what does a hospital in 2040 look like? I think there's a few different dimensions of what it would look like in 2040. First of all, right now, world-class healthcare is typically only available in first world developed cities. And in 2040, uh, I hope that it's the case that world-class healthcare is available globally through uh, innovations in robotics and in telemedicine. And then, frankly, just network infrastructure uh, globalizing. So, for example, having a, a 4G or a 5G by 2040, a 6G, 7G uh, internet connection available globally for ultimately 10 billion people in the world. You know, having that infrastructure and then building upon that infrastructure, telemedicine, robotics capabilities such that world-class medicine is democratized uh, is going to be like a, yeah, the, the biggest impact thing that we can have. Of course, over the next you know, 20, 25 years, there will also be advances within these first world markets. And I think the biggest advances there will be in the personalization of medicine. We're starting to see some of this uh, personalization start to happen in the pharmaceutical industry. And certainly, I think over time, there'll be fewer generic global answers to particular individual problems. I see the drug development process speeding up considerably. You know, right now it's like a 10 to 15 year, uh, 15 year process because of the time it takes to run clinical trials. Also because of the manual process that's involved in generating and creating like molecules to be tested. And uh, I can see that whole process being automated, coming up with the molecules at scale uh, very quickly, being able to evaluate and test them using biomarkers that 
we haven't developed yet uh, or we're starting to develop and we'll be able to evaluate at scale. You know, it's going to be amazing. Uh, I'm looking forward to it and I'm happy, happy that that Protrero and, and I'm able to contribute and, and uh, the, the team here is uh, helping lead the way. It's inevitable. Again, not a Google comment, so I won't put that on you, but I'll just ask your opinion. So medical devices are used to heal, but oftentimes it's converted over to sort of high performance in human beings, right? Nobody wants to be average, right? So Viagra started as a drug, right? And it ended up being a performance drug, right? <laughs> and then and then I was at the American College of Cardiology a couple of weeks ago, and I noticed that there were an enormous number of companies coming out with these wearables that would get a number of metrics off of you from cardiac function. And Apple had their Apple Heart mm -hmm. Project there. I'm sure you're very aware of, of that capturing all the data off of your Apple Watch, right? So um, what are your thoughts on using these med tech tools for human upgrades? Like I, I had shared with one of my teammates, I've got a 12-year-old son. Why would I not put a patch on him that he can take off once a month that measures his cardiac output uh, as an athlete, just as a uh, healthcare situation? We have uh, potential problems in our family, so I want to be preemptive with that stuff. And then he, we have a baseline as he grows to 12, 15, 20, 25, 30. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, ultimately, I think that over the next 25 years, we'll make a lot better and, uh, and a lot more data-driven decisions based on how we live our lives. And we'll be able to measure and experiment with our daily habits uh, in ways that we haven't been able to do before because we haven't been able to capture that data. For example, even just uh, the process of sleep and being able to capture and now measure the quality of sleep and experiment yourself with the food you eat and how that reflects uh, on the sleep you have. And so this whole like, you know, the quantitative science of health and habits that people take on, it's going to emerge significantly given that we're able to build sensors that help us measure things like this. And I think this is a natural thing. And I think hopefully we can learn a lot from it and people, uh, people do go down this path. And of course, ultimately, there'll be a line where it comes down to the ethics of going above and beyond what's good for, for our community. Uh, I think there are some, you know, some, some folks like Elon Musk, for example, who are quite concerned about the uh, ethics of artificial intelligence in the long run. I think ultimately that question will come, you know, how do we draw these ethical lines? And I think this is a difficult question to answer today because uh, we're not quite there yet. Do you think it's a generational thing? Like my mom and dad right. have no concept of what is happening outside of um, pull a lever on Monday, something happens on Tuesday physically. Or uh, giving their information away. Right? Or giving their information. So this is the first generation yeah. that has had that enormous yeah. struggle between a data-driven and not. So I think that impacts things too, understanding technology. Yeah, you know, I, I think this is a huge, uh, a, a huge aspect of building consumer tech products today. Is how do you communicate to your users what's actually happening uh, with their data, and how is the company using their data in various ways? And you know, the the EU came out right. with uh, with GDPR recently, and it's had a huge influence on the tech industry globally. It's crucial that we communicate really clearly to everybody and not just like companies like Google, but even med device companies. Well, what happens with your data and who owns your data? Is it you or is it the company's product? And you know, these are questions ultimately that are going to be asked more and more. And uh, frankly, in the short run, simply have to be more proactive about communicating regularly what is being collected and how do you go and delete it if you if you want to and how right. do you how do you have influence and control right and then how do you know a la cambridge that it really was deleted 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's a whole yeah. other subject. What I think is interesting, Joe, is uh, I think there might be a time where people opt in for predictive health. So right now I have a ton of data that's being pulled right now on my heart. Yeah. I might have like what you said, a patch mm-hmm. or some uh, clothing that tells me how much radiation I'm receiving, smart te- utensils, plates, sleep pillows, everything that's around us from a predictive standpoint. If I were to opt in and go to a hospital that has the capabilities to analyze that, there's a huge win for that hospital. Just like robotics swung the pendulum, if a hospital has the capability to apply machine learning AI and you're triaged the second you walk in, instead of saying, I'm trying to piece together this puzzle and figure out your heart history, I can just look at it and I have a 92% confidence that this is what's happening. Yeah, and you know, I, I think one thing that I hope will change over the, the next uh, 10 to maybe 20 years is that the data that, that you create that's about you, especially in particular health information, but, but not even health information, uh, just the data you create with the consumer products you use, that's your data and it stays on your device and you have control over who you give it to. And it's, uh, you know, maybe not necessarily stored at uh, particular companies like servers where they aggregate all everybody's data and then have control over that data. Think about it. Like uh, the hospital system today was designed hundreds of years ago. Uh, Your files live at the hospital. They're analog. Yeah. And it shouldn't be that. It should be your phone, your watch, on your person, your chip. chip in you. Whatever it may be. I chip my kid. But yeah, but it, it should, if you opt in, Think about it. If let's say let's say you're uh, walking down the street and you get an imminent warning from your watch that you have to go to a hospital right now. If you get a chest murmur or heart, you know, like something, you're like you'll rationalize. Everything's fine. Now imagine 20 years from now. uh, Last year, your friend died from not paying attention to the warning. Mm -hmm. Last week, you read something Mm -hmm. that uh, somebody with a similar situation was saved. Are you or are you not less likely to go into the hospital? You are. Right. And if you walk into that hospital and all of your data is then analyzed the second you walk in. Right. All your vitals. Think about all that. All your vitals. The doc walks in, they have a swiper go right over you. What's your last 24, 48, 96 hours? And you can show me a trend, which you know better than anybody sitting at this table, yeah. is everything in prediction. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we talk about vitals today as um, as something that we can measure with today's sensors. But imagine... Uh, over, you know, I hope over the next 10 to 20 years, there's sensors that produce data that you wouldn't even have thought could be, could exactly. be measured. And, That's right. and given, you know, the richness of, of that information, what you'd be able to predict, I'm sure with, with, with a high level of accuracy that, that today we only think is like, uh, who knows if I'm going to get Alzheimer's, who knows if I'm going to get MS or who knows right. what's going to happen to me tomorrow. You know, certainly there'll be a, like an order of magnitude advancements. Uh, you know, in two parts there, it's like one part is the, you know, advancements in machine learning. I think we've already made advancements there, but, you know, we need advancements in the sensors and yeah. the devices Big as well. Business, and yeah. I think uh, right now, you know, there's only so much data that gets collected. So uh, we need to move to the move to a point where uh, we're able to collect data that's richer and that enables us to improve predictions in the short run and in the very long term. So we can plan around that. It's our responsibility. Yep. We have to do it. Well, that was awesome. Um Appreciate you joining us today on, on the line. No, thanks, Rajan. We've really enjoyed having you as a, one of our technical advisors. And it's just, uh, it's really neat to come visit you and, and live in the future every now and then. Yeah. And thank you. 
when we talk about the future of healthcare, I feel like uh, you know one of the big areas where we need to invest is in uh, in devices that help us uh, collect information that we can use to help improve uh, outcomes and make predictions. And you know, right now one of the bottlenecks is just the data is not there in a lot of cases. And if we can build devices to make that data available, then all the better. Yeah. Thanks, Rajan. Cool. Thanks. I'm Joe Mullings. This has been On the Line with Joe Urban, CEO of Potrero, and Rajan Patel, Director of Search or Head of Search? Senior Director. Senior Director. Sorry, Senior Senior Director Director of Search at Google. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.